0: Jimbo, this is Tracy. <laughs> I a- love that. You call me Jimbo. <laughs> Another little thing's birthday. Laugh. Okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, today we're going to be uh, talking to uh, Dr. Emily Hodge. Um, I think it's funny I just want to share with the listeners That we've already called her once today <laughs> Accidentally And she was like "Ah, oh, we're not supposed to talk for another 45 minutes But anyway um, We are going to call her back now And she is a assistant professor of educational leadership At Montclair State University in New Jersey Excellent And she's done some recent research on tracking So I'm really excited to talk to her today Tracking and differentiation So,
0: All right, let's see if she's there
1: Hello. Hi, Emily. This is uh, Jim Martin.
2: Hi, Jim. How are you?
1: Good. And you?
2: Good. Yeah. And uh, Tracy, are you there also?
0: Yes. Uh, and we just confessed to our listeners that we tried to call you at the wrong time. <laughs> oh,
2: <laughs> I thought we were keeping that. This isn't a live podcast, is it?
1: <laughs> no, Hi, no. But we usually just record as we go. So We
0: think it's okay. best we're just our authentic selves. <laughs>
1: Yeah, we want people to know we're human. (laughs) So thank you for taking time to talk to us twice today.
2: Oh, yeah, no, my (laughs) pleasure.
1: (laughs) So why don't we start off by just having you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, how you ended up where you are today.
2: Sure. Um, Well, so uh, as perhaps has already been in the podcast, my name is Emily Hodge. I am an assistant professor at Montclair State University in New Jersey, um, and I work in a department of educational leadership. So I work with teachers who want to become principals or instructional coaches um, or some other kind of school leader. Um, I went to grad school at Penn State. Uh, My PhD is um, in educational theory and policy. And before that, I taught middle school English language arts um, in a school just outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania.
0: Wow, great. Very
2: nice. And you are, you're talking about tracking. Tell us about it. Right. So, um, oh, when I'm also curious to ask you all how you came across this article that I had written about tracking on the Common Core state standards.
1: So I was telling Tracy just a little bit earlier that um, I subscribed to the Marshall Memo, and, ah, okay. um, written yeah. by Kim Marshall, and he mm-hmm. looks at articles uh, in journals, magazines, books, and um writes a summary of them. And so I came upon your article and I thought it looked really interesting and that's when I reached out. And so then since I've had the opportunity to read the full article, but that's how I wouldn't have come across it if I w- weren't a subscriber yeah. to the Marshall Memo.
0: And that's a compliment, yeah. Marshall Memo. That's like big stuff because we really rely on that to <laughs> kind of give us you know directions about research and where things are going. as As people in the buildings, we struggle sometimes on really keeping up on current research. And so uh, it's quite an achievement, I think, for the Marshall Memo to grab your work and to share it out with everyone.
2: Oh yeah, thank you. I was really thrilled when Kim emailed me because, um, you know, obviously I'd heard of him, but um, you know that uh, it's it's different than just sharing my article on Twitter to the people who follow me, which are mostly other academics. Yeah. So I thought it was pretty pretty amazing to actually have um, more more people see it and more people who are working in schools. Mm-hmm. So talk a little bit
1: about your um, research and um, specifically the kinds of expectations we often um, see from lower tracks. Maybe Mm -hmm. a little bit about your process, your findings...
2: Sure. Um, So this article um, was in the American Educational Research Journal, um, and it was based on my dissertation, which, you know, is kind of my first big independent research project that I did as the culminating experience of my graduate school process and my PhD. Um, And when I was looking for topics, I was motivated by my own teaching experiences in which I saw students who were in a lower level class struggle with their own self concept They didn't feel smart. Um, You know, there were also times when I saw or sometimes participated in these conversations that we would have as teachers around which course was, you know, we thought was most appropriate for which particular students or in those annual meetings or course placement times when you're trying to figure out where students, uh, quote unquote, ought to go. Um, And it just seemed to me like. Everyone that was involved in this leveled system that many of us experienced as students ourselves um, had, so teachers, parents, students, everyone involved in this system had some deeply internalized ideas about student ability um, from this hierarchical system that we were all kind of enmeshed in. Right. And one of the things that surprised me was that even when, as a teacher, um, I would very ch- deliberately try to disrupt this system and I would try to do things that I thought were very challenging or hard in the lower level class that I was teaching – um and then sometimes the opposition that I faced was just from students saying like oh miss Hodge we're the dumb class like why are Ooh. you wh- who are you to think that like we can even do this why are we even trying and that I mean that's like one of the most painful <laughs> things that you can encounter as a teacher yeah. um and also the most motivating because you think oh my like well, of course you can do it um you know and I think to really Um, I think it's very important as teachers that, you know, we, we have the locus of responsibility is on us. It's our responsibility to make sure the scaffolding is in place. So that students can do something that is difficult. Um, It's our responsibility to help try to build students up. But there's also a systemic level of responsibility that you are working against. If there's a certain kind of structure or system that is telling students that they're less capable, then you have to work double time or overtime to try to help them understand that, in fact, they are capable.
1: Yeah, you talk Um, talk a little bit in the article about not wanting to criticize teachers because you find them to be deeply caring and hardworking. We totally agree with that. Um, What are some little things that schools can do to address the issues of the research?
2: Yeah, well, so I think um, one thing that, so I'll kind of start at the more macro level and then go down to a more micro level. Perfect. So. At the school level, I think it's extremely important for whoever is involved in making decisions about student placement to not put too much importance or emphasis on state test data or other large scale data. Um, One of the things that I observed in my dissertation research was that students in this district were placed into a variety of levels of English language arts based on essentially the single data point of their Mm -hmm. state test score. And because of the timing of when schedules had to be built, this was often the state test score from the previous year. It wasn't even the most recent administration Mm -hmm. of the state test. Um, And so... Um, one of the things that I try to really emphasize in the classes that I teach now about school improvement and data-driven instruction is that data is really just information. Um, and those large scale kinds of data, it's just one data point. So just tr- treat it as what it is, one data point of many, and don't use it to group students. Um, there's also many um, schools that are, have actually been very successful in reducing or eliminating the the number of instructional levels that they offer. Um, You know, sometimes parents are concerned, um, you know, could my child receive honors credit if the class is um, unleveled or detract? But there's kind of contract approaches in which students can do extra work for, or not always extra additional quantity, but there can be some kind of a contract approach where students can meet particular requirements to get honors credit. There are some amazing examples of detract schools that have been in place for decades, like Southside High School in uh, Rockville Center in Long Island, New York. Um, There's also an amazing program called the Schools of Opportunity Program from the National Education Policy Center. And all of the schools that win that designation have at least some amount of opening to their curriculum and some amount of detracking. So that's kind of at the more systemic level. Um, But at the teacher level, what are the little things that teachers can do in this type of system? So if you're working within a track system, um, one of the things that you can do is make clear to students, if you are teaching in your lower track class, that they're actually doing the same work as students in the higher track class. Um, You can make explicit to them that you are reading about the same things, writing about the same things, that you have brainstormed some extra types of supports. You can offer students choice about the types of uh, across all classes, whatever sort of level it is. You can uh, brainstorm some different supports to put in place and actually allow students to choose what supports they feel they need at this moment. Um another thing that teachers can do is um give students something that has some external significance something that students know is really hard to help with this self concept piece one thing that i used to do for middle school students in a lower track class was give them some SAT questions and so for for middle school students they know the SAT is something very hard um right. and i would let them use a dictionary let them work with a partner to talk about their answers. Uh, And then lo and behold, most of the students got most of the questions right. And then that was like, you know, a very, very easy 15 minute thing that made them think, oh, I just got all these SAT questions right. Oh, okay. I actually must, yeah, maybe I can. Um, Yeah, so those are a few things. And then the last one that I would recommend that's a little thing, is just to be careful about the language that you are using to describe individual students or groups of students and try hard to stay away from language that is essentializing students as part of groups. And it's hard because it's kind of a, a shorthand that many, many teachers, including myself, have used in the past. Uh, things like honors kids, mm-hmm. regular kids, um, to just think. About trying to describe students as individuals or even to use like person first language students in my upper level class is a small change, but not to um, describe groups of students in terms of their track placement or their ability level.
1: Right. Kind of like special ed.
2: Mm -hmm. Correct. Special ed kids. And there's, um, you know, it's a shorthand and no one means anything by it. But it's part of um, how language expresses the structures that we've all internalized. um, And changing our language can also help us kind of disrupt structures through our actions. Changing your language can help you take different actions. Yes.
0: I, I love that you're talking about this because I believe language matters. Language matters yeah. a lot in the work that we do with kids. And we make, sometimes there's jokes about the short bus or jokes about the Blackbird mm. group or whatever. Yeah, But I'm curious, absolutely. you talk about how being careful that we don't talk to them about honors kids or, which I think happens often in some of the places mm-hmm. that I have worked. I'm curious, what are for our listeners, what would be like a sample language you would recommend? Cause I think people are scratching their head and they're like, ah, what do I say then?" Uh, yeah.
2: If I don't say that, what do I say? Yeah. What would you um, say? All right. So I would either say, try to talk about students as individuals. Mm-hmm. If you need to talk about students in terms of a group, maybe just try your sixth period class. Mm-hmm. Uh, that could be an alternative. Um, but you know, just as, um. Yeah, just six period class. There's and there's really no or you know student or like I was mentioning with the uh, person first language. You know we all understand if you're working with within a, a tracked system that there are um, students in your uh, quote unquote honors class or whatever you call it. Um, but you don't have to say honors kids. You can say students in this class. Mm. That's a very subtle difference. But it actually is, I think, a meaningful difference because you're not it's not a characteristic that you're ascribing to a student. You're recognizing that they are um, in a particular grouping situation.
0: Yeah, I, absolutely. So really just avoiding that label that gets kind of pasted on kids and sticks with them. And and uh, I think it's it's important for us to pay attention to that.
2: Yeah, well, and even thinking about um, how we talk about students in terms of their uh, their state test scores or other types of data, one of the things that was very powerful for me in this um, dissertation site when I was interviewing teachers, um, and you know, this I actually was interviewing them about Common Core implementation. I was not directly investigating tracking um, in this study at all. I was interested in this kind of tension between Common Core as having a lot of language around increasing rigor and promoting equity, but then how would teachers kind of negotiate this in a system that was heavily tracked? But um, I actually would only just ask teachers questions like, can you tell me what kind of information's been getting out there about the Common Core? Can you tell me about your daily schedule? What what classes do you?" teach? Like what's, how how does that go? And then I had teachers say to me things like, well, second period, those are my level twos. And so because of that, here are some of the things that I skip, but then fourth period, Mm. those are, you know, it's like a mix of level two and three. So here's the things that I do. And then sixth period, those are my level fours. And i said, oh, I've never heard something quite like this. I mean, I've heard the term honors kids and regular kids, but I never heard groups of students described as level twos before and essentially because these were these were uh this is how the state test was scored in terms of level one level two uh level one through five um and then because students were grouped for instruction then it was um a very kind of natural normative thing for teachers to say well this class has mostly scored level two on this assessment Hmm. um and therefore this class is my level twos. But that that's so I think that's actually a perfect example of how to just modify your language slightly by don't not calling a group of students Level twos, which kind of has like a connotation of like alphas and betas, like a brave new world connotation potentially, (laughs) Um, and uh, and instead just say, oh well, you know, this is my second period class. A a lot of students in here have scored a level two, but even that, you know, to recognize well on the state assessment, that could very well have validity issues, Mm -hmm. Um, and so therefore, you know, there's like we're not going to put too much stock in that, and I'm going to recognize that, you know, this is where students are on this one data point right now, but other uh, assessments may actually show them needing different things at this time. Yeah.
0: How do
1: you um, talk to teachers about um, who might say, well, the reason why I have to distinguish that is because these students have a different level of skills. So if I'm differentiating and I need to teach the same content as all my other classes, Hmm. these kids come to me with less knowledge or less ability than some of the other kids that I work with. And so how how do you navigate that with the issue of tracking and differentiation?
2: Yeah. Well, and so so there's something um that P. David Pearson, who's a famous literacy researcher, has written about called the Basic Skills Conspiracy. <laughs> um and so this is the idea that um it's very, very easy for all of us adults working in school buildings to think like, okay, well, students don't know A. Therefore, we need to keep helping them learn A before they can learn or be exposed to B and C. And then very easily, students are only ever learning A because we never feel confident that they have mastered A.
0: um,
2: And therefore, they never move on to B and C. Um, So I would just um, try to... Talk about that with teachers um, in a way that just says, you know, well, it, you know, yes, you can keep working on A, but there's parts of B and C that you can still do. Yes. Um, so, so that's absolutely an option. Um, you know, you can also... Think about it in terms of, um, you know, right now, What what's your best assessment of some of like what students can do right now? But what might happen if you thought carefully about what like some good supports to put in place and then you tried to have them do something that was harder, you know, and just to be to be open minded and to think that perhaps maybe there's something that you haven't gotten quite right yet. Another way that you could support students It's not to say it's obviously all on teachers. Of course, it's not. but just for everyone working in the system to try to have an open-minded and mutable view of what students are capable of, for both teachers and students to have that view.
1: Right. It reminds me a little bit of like basic facts in mathematics. Uh, There's all this talk about, like, well, the kids come in and they don't know their basic facts, and so how am I supposed to do long division? And it's like, well, we can put some scaffolds in place because... You know, they may never learn their multiplication tables, but they still got to go on. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yes. And so I get, you know, not to wade into the calculator debate, but, um, you know, will you ever let them, you know, you have to let them move on at some point and then just, you know, it, you can just do your best to help make sure that they are learning their math facts along the way, but you can't keep them there forever. Right. Right.
0: I want to um, go back a little bit to the self-concept, um, mm-hmm. you know, that students have. I'm thinking of some experiences I've had at the secondary level, especially where yeah. students were sort of moved up, and it was even sometimes against oh. the gatekeepers' wishes, right. right? So there's also this kind of tension because people are just waiting for this kid to fail so they could prove you that you know you were mm. wrong and they were right. He should never have been there. And I yeah. I just know that within that realm, the kid himself was in, was in a tough place. And, and I think mm-hmm. it took six months before the kid even started to, you know, breathe when he was in class, because there was so much pressure and feeling so, so much like he didn't belong, you know?
2: Yeah. How do I, well, kids I, do that? well, I, I honestly, I'm not sure, Tracy. I mean, cause, but that example seems to me to be, one uh, uh, incredibly powerful example of how everyone um, working within this school that you're thinking of has internalized the logic of tracking to such an extent that like there's um, a conversation about who deserves to be in that Mm -hmm, class, mm -hmm. what types of behaviors that students should exhibit to be deserving, um, and what exactly is happening in that upper level class that's so good. Who, who, Who or what is, tr- is being protected. Mm. Um, white people. Was, <laughs> I mean, I'm going well, to put and, it out there. Yeah, in this, it's it, white people. Well, yeah, and so because I actually wrote down when you said that, like, well, and what are the racial dynamics? Was this a situation in which this was a student of color yes. being moved into a class that was primarily full of, full of white students um, and, you know, how isolating that could likely be for a student of color in the, in the best without all of those other scenarios. Yeah. Um, so, so that to me, um, you know, examples like that just make me kind of get angry and just like burn the whole system down. Like that's just, um, <laughs> just like, I mean, that, cause that's, that's, um, you know, you have the kind of the oh, opportunity hoarding is this very helpful concept um, from uh, John Diamond and Amanda Lewis's work um, and others in sociology uh, that describes the ways that parents often, um, you know, and again, out of good intentions and wanting the best for their children, can, you know, that you only feel like you're getting the best by virtue of someone else not getting it. Yeah,
0: so true, so true. Yeah.
2: yeah, and so a lot of times parents are extremely invested in preserving tracking systems because they can only be sure that their students are, they think, experiencing something that is good if there's a range of things on offer, and then therefore, by implication, some must be like less good.
0: Yeah, and at the same time, as you're using the language opportunity hoarding, I'm thinking about students who were... Caucasian and who yeah. were truly not um, maybe having the success in, in learning in school that their parents wanted them to be so they but they still wanted to fight very very hard to make sure that their kids got in that class and right it, the kid mm-hmm. wasn't ready and it was it was also not very positive for that kid.
2: Yeah, well, because so I think that there. So some of the things that this speaks to are um, really trying to do a lot of outreach to parents to help them understand that um, that their children are going to be okay. Um, but you know, parents have to feel confident, and I know that all of the schools that have pursued detracking have had to do a lot of outreach to parents to help them understand that their students are still going to have. Um, very good opportunities in life. This isn't going to help, you know, decrease their, their, at their future potential. Um, but then, yeah, I think it just, it also speaks to, um, the need to really be transparent, open and honest about, um, The purpose of these different classes, like, I don't think there's any reason for the atmosphere of a higher track class to be so rarefied and so exclusive and exclusionary. I mean, there's really no reason for all students not to have access to that kind of knowledge. Well, I I was...
0: I'm thinking about some other courses, some were AP, some were not, but when you have that AP, that's another level of like gatekeeping because Mm I'm, I'm evaluated on how many kids pass the AP. So I'm going to be really selective Mm -hmm. because it makes me look better if I have a higher level of success.
2: Of course. Well, okay. And then, so who is the person? So, so then, who is the person who makes the decision to incentivize your, your behavior as the AP teacher in that way? Mm-hmm. Is it the district superintendent? Because if so, then that's the person whose mind needs to be changed first.
0: In our mm-hmm. case, it's even coming down from the state because the state ah. will give you some. Um, they'll they'll give you a ranking, right? On the oh, wow. number of kids that have passed the AP out of how yeah. many who took it. So that percentage is, is used at a state level.
2: Yeah. Hmm. Mm. Well- yeah well, it's um, fire the definitely, definitely, yeah. <laughs> Well, no, it's a very, it's a well, so it's a very difficult problem because there are a lot of potential avenues um, to start solving it from. Mm-hmm. So I think some of the things that we're talking about is like, you know, if you want to pursue some kind of detracking or some kind of opening up, Mm-hmm. of the coursework that you have where do you start do you start at the district superintendent level mm-hmm. um, you know in a lot of ways that's probably ideal because then that person is in an is in a leadership scenario um, to make changes you know or is there a, a, a way for a bottom-up change in the scenario for teachers to come together and decide that they would like to make a change and pursue approval of that at a yeah. higher level yeah um, you know it i but since I, I love the title of this podcast little things first um you know and i think that at an individual level just trying to think a little more carefully about your instructional choices the type of grouping situation that you're in and the language that you use around students um and ways that you can provide more scaffolding and have as much equality as possible and what you're asking students to do across those levels and make sure they know that
0: yeah absolutely absolutely
1: so what um what would a differentiation logic look like that would be different than a tracking logic? You've mentioned it a little bit uh, with yeah. scaffolding. Uh, everybody's, you know, learning the core, mm-hmm. basically <laughs> the core curriculum um, at deep levels, hopefully. So, but what what else could teachers and schools be doing that would be more in alignment with differentiation?
2: Yeah. Um, okay. Well, so, um, so part of my article was actually identifying things that I was hearing teachers say or things that I watched them do and then asked them about why they did those things um, that fell into either a logic of tracking or a logic of differentiation. So here's kind of a bottom-up bottom list of um, some elements of the logic of differentiation. Nice. Um so a couple of them do have to do with language as we've been talking about. So um refraining from using hierarchical language or assessment categories like um you know basic kids or below basic kids quote unquote to discuss student groups. Um another one that's language related is um not describing or groups of students as having collective characteristics and instead describing students as individuals. Um, so then in terms of instruction um maintaining the rigor the rigor of whatever the curricular task is and providing scaffolding and support. Um, and this one could be a little bit more fuzzy. Some of the examples that I describe in the article are about teachers substituting or modifying a task that they wanted students to do or a text that um, the curriculum wanted them to read and teachers said, oh no, like this is too hard. Instead I'm gonna have them read this instead you know, and, some, and I think those can be perfectly legitimate choices sometimes, but I think it has more to do with your mindset. And if you're saying, well, like right now at this moment, I think this text that's on the same topic and will help me meet the same goals, but won't be at students' frustration level, and I'm going to have them read it independently, so I don't want something that's going to frustrate them, um, is a better choice. Um So I think that, you know, there's elements of modification to curriculum that can still be in line with the logic of differentiation other than just always providing more scaffolding. But I do think that's the biggest one. Um, and then just the last two are, um, in terms of teacher belief, not assuming a sequential view of learning, like we talked about that basic skills conspiracy. So, um, having in your mind that, okay, students can actually understand something that's complex. They can grapple with an idea that's complicated. They can think about, advanced content without always having to master the basics first. Those can be concurrent things. Um, And then the last one is another kind of inside the teacher attitude and belief, which is having an internal locus of control. And if, and knowing that, Overall, the responsibility for student learning resides with you as the teacher. Um, you know, obviously you can't, there's certainly some responsibility for student learning that is inherent to the student, um, but don't, don't assume that because your lesson doesn't go well, it's because of a deficit in students. That right. is something that I observed, um, in this, the, in this study that I, I wrote about in this article, um, you know, a teacher thinking that her, um, evaluation had really flopped because she thought that, the class that she chose had students that had scored fours and fives on the state assessment. And then when she was reflecting on it with me and she said, well, wait a second. No, actually, I think maybe these students were twos and threes. Maybe I just chose the wrong class. And if I had (laughs) just chosen the class that was basically like, you know, the students that uh, would I think would have been more successful. My observation would have gone better. Um, You know, but it's not, it's not about them. It's it's about you.
0: Yeah. That, and I think that what you're talking about as far as like we often want to blame the kids that that is yeah. overall, boy. Let's talk about little thing. If we could actually yeah. just start owning some of the yeah. right some of the work that we're doing and celebrate the successes and and yeah. all we're all in it together and and you know, that's a question we have in our um in our interview processes, we ask teachers to talk about a time when a lesson didn't go well, and we listen uh, to mm-hmm. what do you what are they saying, and how did they try to like adjust on the fly. So uh, that's a great yeah. example. That's a great example.
1: If you could, um, one of the questions we always ask our um, our guests on the podcast is: if you could talk to your younger self through a time machine of sorts and give yourself some um, advice as an educator or scholar, what would you? Mm-hmm. What would you say to your younger self?
2: Ah, okay. Um, this is is a great question. Um, one of the things that I wish I could tell myself at an earlier age was, um, to not worry so much about having external validation and Mm. to just really be more content with the knowledge that I thought I was doing a, a quote unquote good job or, you know, that I thought I was putting forth a good effort. Um, and, you yeah, to not worry so much about whether or not other people thought I was doing a good job.
0: <laughs> yeah. Boy, well, that's a tough, that's a tough thing. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, I love it, though, because even when we go back to the kids and self-concept, right? As we yeah. have kids move into these places that they haven't really been welcomed in before and helping mm-hmm. them with that same thing, don't worry about so much about these, this external validation. That's a lesson for all of us at every level.
2: Yeah. Well, and I think it's, um, you know, thinking about, um, different kinds of detracking and opening up access, you know, the ways that we assess students often are also very hierarchical and, you know, there really is not always a need to, um, to have those kinds of A, B, C, D, F grades. Um, And this is somewhere that I think that um, places that have tried some kind of standards-based grading system that have really embraced the like, okay, well, this is sort of where I am now, but I'm improving. Or, you know, we all have different strengths and weaknesses. And right now, these are my strengths and weaknesses. You know, that that's a very complementary initiative to um, the idea of opening up access and opening up coursework
1: yeah very nice I'm really interested in some of the places uh, that you mentioned earlier Uh, we sometimes interview leaders or um, school systems on this podcast and so I'd love to reach out to some of those that you mentioned and see if we can find out how they're making all of this work
2: Yes, I think that would be a great idea. And again, this um, Schools of Opportunity initiative through the National Education Policy Center, they have made it their um, the mission of this project to publicly recognize schools that are really working hard to open up opportunity to their students. Um, it's an amazing initiative. So instead of just celebrating student achievement, they're celebrating opportunity that schools are providing.
1: That's Excellent. Well what are you working on now, Emily? Like what's your next steps and as we wrap oh, up for yeah. today?
2: Yes. Um well so actually um so this data that I collected in this article is from twenty thirteen. <laughs> And um, uh, I graduated in 2015. So actually I've been working on a variety of other things um, since that time, mostly focused on um, the legacy of the Common Core State standards uh-huh. and trying to assess, you know, if, so if we had this uh, set of standards that many states initially signed on to a decade ago, um, has that had any kind of lasting change in either instructional practices or the curriculum marketplace, You know, if um, states potentially can get um, at states have the same standards, they could either share resources with each other, they could look to common organizations, perhaps there um, are textbooks that are more widely used now. Um, And so I have been involved in investigating those kinds of questions uh, over the last, uh, you know, five five years now.
0: Wow, very nice. Yeah, that's going to be interesting. When you say it's been 10 years, there's a part of me that's like, what?
2: I know <laughs> but it was just like two yeah. years ago, wasn't it? Well, it's it's kind of equivalent to um, how we all when it turned to 2020 thought yeah. Wait, I really remember when you came. It doesn't seem like that long ago. Yeah, absolutely. Well, right. we'll
1: look forward to that new research when it comes out. So keep us informed and we'll um, let we'd love to have you back and talk some more.
2: Oh, sure. Well, thank you very much, Jim. Thank you, Tracy. This has really been a pleasure for me. (laughs)
0: Thank you, Emily, and have a fantastic day. Yeah, thank you for doing this important
1: work. All right.